This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies. Barry Manilow is one of the most successful pop performers of the 70s and early 80s. He had 25 top 40 hits between 1974 and 83, including Mandy, I Write the Songs, Trying to Get the Feeling Again, Looks Like We Made It, Can't Smile Without You, Copacabana, and I Made It Through the Rain. Now, at the age of 80, he's got a musical on Broadway titled Harmony. Manilow wrote the music and his longtime collaborator Bruce Sussman the lyrics. It's based on the true story of the comedian Harmonists, an all-male group who were international stars in Germany before World War II, but the group was banned by the Nazis. Here's a bit of the title song from the musical. Harmony, did we have harmony? But that's just about all we have. Suddenly, a little harmony, and the poverty's not so bad. Before Manilow started writing and singing pop songs, he wrote commercial jingles, and he was Bette Midler's first music director. He stopped recording his own songs in the 80s, but he continued performing, and in September he broke Elvis's record of performances in Las Vegas. When Terry spoke with Barry Manilow in 2002, he had a new album of original songs titled Here at the Mayflower, and he had released Ultimate Manilow, a best-of compilation. Let's begin with one of his hits. up your ultimate Manilow record, the greatest hits record, I looked at the songs on the back and I thought, well, I know that. I know that one. Don't know this one. Don't know this one. But when I played it, I realized that I knew the ones that I didn't think I knew. I just didn't remember them by title. Oh, I have insinuated my little self into your brains over the last 20 years. But that's the thing. I mean, you know, your songs were everywhere. I mean, they were were on the radio, they were on TV, they were in stores and and probably in elevators. I mean, they were just. Oh, I'm sure they were in elevators. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they were in elevators, yes. No, it's true. And, you know, I hadn't even listened to these these, uh, records. Uh, You know, I sing them nightly. Um, but they're not, you know, they don't sound exactly like the old records did. And I, I actually, uh, somebody was playing it, and I actually listened to it, and they all sound pretty good. I mean, you know, Weekend in New England sounds pretty good, even, you know, all these years later. What are some of the most unusual places you've heard your songs? Um, 
some of the, that's a great question. Some of the most unusual places. Well, you know, well, I, I, I must say that, uh, uh, you know, I, I have heard it uh, in restaurants and uh, unusual places. I don't know, um, you know, in, in big uh, stadiums. Sometimes they do do it in big stadiums and, uh, and of course, in, uh, you know, boutiques and, and uh, you know, the, the, uh, karaoke bars. That was pretty awful, I must say. <laughs> oh, that tell was, me a karaoke that, story. That was, that was really, that was, it was some very bad singer trying to do, I write the songs. It was, it was really, um, I had to leave. <laughs> well, what were you doing there in the first place? Why were you in a karaoke bar? I didn't know it was bar? a karaoke bar. It was a Mexican restaurant, and then suddenly somebody <laughs> got up and, and, and sang. I, I, I hope they didn't know that it was there. <laughs> That's really funny. So somebody was singing, what, I write the songs, did you say? I write the songs, yes. It was lovely. Oh. Actually, the karaoke part wasn't, wasn't bad, though. The, 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 the track that they sing to wasn't bad. The funny thing about I Write the Songs, uh, you know, people associate that song with you because you recorded it, but you didn't write I Write the Songs. I did not. And I knew it was going to get me in trouble as soon as Clive showed. You know, my hit record uh, experience is all, uh, I give the credit to Clive Davis, who was the president of Arista uh, while I was there. And um, uh, I, when I went on to Arista Records, I really knew nothing about pop music at all. Um, my first a single was Could It Be Magic, a, a, you know, a, a song that I based on a Chopin prelude, and it came in at eight minutes long. So what did I know about pop music? So you know, you're supposed to have a three-minute record. Um, but when Clive uh, started to work with me, he actually taught me the, um, the ins and outs of how to have a hit record. And uh, he would submit songs to me so that I would arrange and produce and sing these outside pieces of material, even though I considered myself a songwriter. And I Write the Songs was one of the ones he gave me, and I knew I was going to get in trouble if I accepted this, because first of all, I figured everybody was going to think that I was screaming about how I write all the songs in the world. What does he think he is, Burt Bacharach? You know? <laughs> and... Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, I didn't write I Write the Songs, but Bruce Johnson of the Beach Boys wrote it. And when I sang it, I knew what he was trying to get to. He's saying the spirit of music is really the creator of everything, you know, of all, all uh, composers' uh, work. And I believe that, too. I believe that when I'm writing, I have nothing to do with it. I'm just taking dictation. Um, I, I loved that idea, but I, I didn't think anybody listening to I Write the Songs would really understand that. And I was right. Most people actually thought um, that I was singing about myself. And it didn't seem to bother anybody either, but uh, but it's true. I didn't write I Write the Songs. Are you sorry you recorded it? or? or, or oh, you... no, no, no. I think over the years, I think uh, uh, people really get a, a big pleasure out of it. Uh, why don't we hear a little bit of I Write the Songs? I write the songs that make the whole That's Barry Manilow, and it's one of his hits that's included on the new CD, Ultimate Manilow. Um, you uh, did a lot of the arranging on your songs. I mean, before you were even a singer, you were an, an, an arranger and, and music director. Um, talk a little bit about the kind of production you liked on your records, on your podcast. I, like I like emotional productions. Mm -hmm. I like to take a listener on a trip. I don't like, you know, a lot of the records that I hear are like one feeling 
they start with a groove, and three minutes later, nothing has happened except a groove. I, I, I've never been able to do that. Some of them I like, I, some of them I like that kind of thing, uh, and a lot of people do it very well today. Uh, but that's not my thing. I really like for your heart to start to beat a little faster, and uh, your, uh, I like to make you have goosebumps now and again. I like to uh, uh, convey the passion that I have for my music uh, to you, the listener, and... Uh, that's what I have always loved, and that's what I've always done with my arranging. Uh, I've always started it in, on one uh, level and tried to take it someplace so that by the end of the song, you've gone somewhere with me. Now, let, let's talk about your, your early musical life. Your first instrument was, I think, accordion? I'm sorry. What happened? Yeah. I'm sorry that it was the accordion. Oh, oh, you're uh, sorry that it was the accordion. Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you have yes, to apologize? Yes, I'm, gui- I'm guilty. Yes, I'm guilty that it was <laughs> Well, the was accordion, accordion is like the hippest instrument now. I don't have to tell you that. You Not know? when I played it. Not when you played it. The whole Lady uh, of Spain bit. Yeah, I think every every uh, Jewish and Italian boy cannot get out of Brooklyn, New York, unless he learns how to play the accordion. There's a guard at the Brooklyn Bridge, <laughs> and you have to play Lady of Spain before you can go over the bridge. Um, everybody I knew played the accordion badly. Uh, uh, I happened to, you know, because I was more musical than the rest of my friends, I, I kind of got through Havana Gila and Lady of Spain, and, <laughs> and uh, I was, <laughs> I actually entertained my relatives, you know, they just thought it was the greatest thing. I, it, it really wasn't the thing that turned my musical motor on, I can tell you. Um, but you're right, there are people who play the accordion and actually uh, uh, make it sound uh, good. I was not one of those people. Did you sing when you played? No, I never sang. I didn't sang, sing until... Until I started making records, I, I never really thought of myself as a singer. Singing was for other people to do. Right. Performing was for other people to do. I was, at, if, if I was going to have a career in music at all, it was going to be as a musician. And that's, that was it. No, I never sang. Now, you've said that your stepfather introduced you to jazz, to music that you really loved. Um, yeah. Tell us about how he introduced you to the music you fell in love with. Well, um, when my mother remarried, um, we the three of us moved into a little apartment uh, uh, still in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and um, he brought with him a stack of records um, that um, I had never uh, heard of before, uh, records that were uh, uh, included uh, people like uh, June Christie, Chris Connors, Dan Kenton, uh, lots of Broadway uh, musical uh, soundtracks, uh, a lot of jazz, Chet Baker, Jerry Mulligan, um, some classical music, uh, and um, I'd never, you know, I'd, I had never been uh, exposed to that kind of thing. My, I was raised for the first part of my life by my mother and my grandparents, who uh, were all very musical, but not uh, in the musical world. But Willie was, and um, I devoured this stack of music. I memorized every note every, for, from every overture, every lick that anybody sang or played, and it was really the beginning of. Uh, of my musical uh, uh, passion for uh, for what wound up to be a career, um, but ha- had he not had I not been exposed to that at the tender age of like twelve or thirteen, I I really don't think I would have gone into the music business. I wouldn't have known what 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 to do. How did you ditch the accordion and start playing piano? Actually, he did it. Uh, he convinced my mother to uh, to buy a spinet piano, and. Um, um, so we got a spin a piano in uh, my little uh, our little apartment, and uh, they uh, pooled their money together and um, uh, gave me piano lessons. And um, it uh, began to uh, I began to 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 love 
making music, more so than I ever did before. Now, was jazz uh, playing something that you picked up by ear or something that you, your teacher was actually able to help you with? No, it was by ear. I think jazz, you can't, you can't be taught jazz. Uh, you listen to it, and then you do your own version of it. But I, you know, you, well, for me at least, I needed to know the rules of music. I needed to know the language of music, and that's what the, the, the lessons were so um, handy for. How do you think listening to jazz uh, during your formative years uh, affected your songwriting style? Well, you know, it always pops up, no matter where, uh, where, um, uh, what, what record uh, I make or what the song I sing. The um, the influence of, of jazz and swing is always lurking somewhere underneath every song I write or perform. And um, on, on the uh, Here at the Mayflower album, it's very obvious in this bebop song that I wrote called Freddie Said. Um, it could have come right out of the 40s, uh, the Cab Calloway thing in the, in the 40s. And, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's an adorable song for the, for, uh, for here at, uh, on Here at the Mayflower. Why don't we hear it? And this is Barry Manilow from his latest CD, Here at the Mayflower. Going up. Freddy's got the dirt on everybody on the street. Don't know how he does it, but he isn't too discreet. Everybody says it always winds up being true. He's got something on everyone, maybe even you. That's Barry Manilow, one of his new songs from his latest CD here at the Mayflower. Now, now you've said that when you were in college, you expected to have a, a pretty conventional life, get married, get a good job, live in the suburbs. What changed your mind and made you pursue music? It was coming out of my ears, and <laughs> I, it just wouldn't leave me alone. I, I tried everything not to follow this muse that would not leave me alone. I, uh, you know, because coming from where I come from, you know, uh, you know, a four floor, six flight walk up, um, where people were just struggling to, you know, to make the rent every every Friday. Um, you know, that, that paycheck every Friday was the most important thing. That's what I learned. You know, there was really no, um, no way, uh, that anybody would take the risk and go into the biz, show biz, the music biz, you know, you just, the the most important thing was security. So no matter how much I loved it and I played in jazz bands and I won the best musician award in high school and all, it never dawned on me that that was going to, I was going to make a career out of it because it just was too risky. Um, but I just kept getting these offers uh, to do things musically. I got a job at CBS um, as a, uh, a log clerk, first as a mailboy, then I was a log clerk when I was uh, jotting down uh, times of television commercials. And I, I, I had this, you know, this regular nine to five life plotted out for me. But whenever I'd play or arrange for somebody, um, you know, I would keep getting these offers to go further than just my nine to five job. And I finally took one and, um, and, um, I, I took a chance and I left CBS and, uh, I never looked back. When you first started working professionally, I think it was in, in more of a supporting role. 
working like you 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 had a, an act with a woman singer. I think Jeannie was her name. Um, yes. And and so you you did some arranging for her. You were the pianist. You sang some duets with her. Uh, but but it was kind of it sounds sounds from your book like it was a kind of supporting role. Did you see yourself as being like a supporting role type of character in music? Well, if I saw myself at all in music, and like I said, it was so risky, I never even dreamed about even that. But if I were to imagine myself in the music business at that time, it would have been as a, in a supporting role, as an arranger, as a pianist, as a producer, as a songwriter. Those were my goals. Those were my dreams. Those were my fantasies that one day, if I ever took the risk, that's where I would wind up. And so my first professional engagement was as a, an accompanist for many, many singers, and Jeannie was one of them. Well, well your, your, your most famous position in a supporting role was as Bette Midler's uh, accompanist and music arranger, and this was in the era when she was playing at the Continental Baths, the, the gay steam bath in Manhattan. How did you meet Bette Midler? Well, she was one of the dozens of girl and boy singers that I was accompanying. I had left CBS, and I had begun... Um, accompanying singers, and I was making a really healthy living um, because I'm really a good accompanist. I'm not that great a pianist, but I'm a really good accompanist, and um, they are always in demand in New York for auditions and people who need arranging and coaching and stuff. So I, before I knew it, I was coaching just about every singer that, that needed a pianist. I, I was booked like 12 hours a day, and Bette must have heard of me and called me and asked if I would play a couple of weekends for her at this place called the Continental Bass. So I worked for a couple of weekends for her. I subbed for her, the piano piano player that she had. And um, she exploded and uh, asked me if I would stay along with her. And I, frankly, didn't want to just work for one person. And she couldn't afford to, you know, really just, you know, pay me for, you know, 24 hours a day. But Bette Midler was so incredibly talented that I just could not say no. And I began to work for her exclusively. What was um, what was your role in her act? I mean, did you were you just quiet at the piano, or did you participate in any of the banter or sing duets? No, 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 no. That again, I you know, I was not up to singing then. That that was still uh, this was still before I began to sing. Uh, in the beginning, I was I just uh, arranged her music, uh, put her act together, uh, tightened it up, led her band, uh, hired the background singers, taught them what to sing. Uh, uh, I you know, I put her whole. Um, musical, the musical part of her show together. Could you uh, talk a little bit about what it was like to uh, play to an audience in, in a gay steam bath? Well, I only worked there for two weekends. You know, people got, uh, you know, there's this unbelievable uh, uh, reputation that uh, both Bet and I had, you know, about working in, you know, all the gay bathhouses of all around the world, you know, in, in, uh, in <laughs> Iran and, uh, and Paris. But it really was, uh, I don't know how long she worked there, but I know for me it was only two weekends. And it was a nightclub situation there, although they were in towels. But uh, it was a nightclub situation, and uh, there was a stage and lights and a sound system. And uh, Bette would come out and do her brilliant uh, hour and a half, and uh, they would uh, freak out. And after the two weekends, uh, she got booked at a place called The Upstairs at The Downstairs, which was uh, uh, in Manhattan. And and that was it. That was the end of my experience at the Continental Baths. But uh, a lot of other people worked at the Baths because uh, it was, like I said, it was a really interesting nightclub situation. And the audiences were fantastic to the the performers. Barry Manilow speaking with Terry Gross in 2002. He and his longtime collaborator Bruce Sussman have a new musical on Broadway titled Harmony. We'll hear more after a break. Later, Justin Chang reviews the new film Poor Things, 
I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at stearnsandfoster.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original drama Time, starring Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, and Bella Ramsey. Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. Hi, I'm Tanya Mosley, co-host of Fresh Air. Before we get back to our show, we want to take a minute to say thank you so much to our Fresh Air Plus supporters and anyone listening who donates to public media. Everything you hear from the NPR network really does depend on your contributions. For anyone listening who isn't a supporter yet, right now is a great time to get involved. If you like perks, Fresh Air Plus offers sponsor-free listening and exclusive bonus episodes. If you want to make a tax-deductible donation to your favorite NPR station or stations, that's great, too. We've even had NPR Plus subscribers make additional contributions. No matter how you give, your donation helps us continue to bring you news and shows across the NPR network. If you value what we do here, please give today at donate.npr.org slash freshair or explore NPR Plus at plus.npr.org. Thanks. Let's get back to Terry's 2002 interview with Barry Manilow. He was one of the biggest pop hitmakers of the 70s and early 80s. He now has a musical on Broadway titled Harmony, based on the true story of the male singing group The Comedian Harmonists, who were banned by the Nazis. Manilow wrote the music and his longtime collaborator Bruce Sussman the lyrics. Before we get back to the interview, let's listen to Manilow's first big hit, Mandy. I remember all my life Raining down as cold as ice Shadows of a man A face through a window Crying in the night The night goes into morning Just another day Happy people pass my way Looking in their eyes Did you think, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna be the one by the microphone. I'm gonna be the one singing. I'm gonna have my own act. What what led you to that point? You know, I was. It, it felt to me. It still seems to me that I was not in charge of that until way way into my career. Um, it felt like I was just catching up. Uh, I was just uh, keeping up uh, barely because um, when this opportunity to sing for myself uh, came up. Um, 
I was very reluctant to pursue this. I, first of all, didn't believe that I had any right to be a singer. I didn't think that I had a voice. I didn't think that I had a style. I didn't think that... And frankly, it wasn't anything that I'd ever aspired to anyway. But I got this record uh, offer, a contract offer, because somebody had heard my demos that I had sung. I had sung my own my own songs. And I was trying to get other people to record them, So, I, but I couldn't afford other uh, singers, so I sang them myself. And I got an offer um, to make a record um, because Bell Records thought that I... I don't know what they thought. They liked what they heard. And um, I, I was, you know, I was so interested in um, in promoting my own songs that if that was the only way to do it, I took it. Um, but they said that I could not, they wouldn't give me this deal unless I promised to go out and put a show together and promote it. Well, that, I just didn't know how to do that. But I was still conducting for Bet, and I asked her if I could sing a few songs to open her, th- her second act. And in that way, I would... Uh, tour to promote my album and I would also stay uh, a music director for her for her show and she let me do it so I would conduct her first act then I would open her second act with three of my songs from this new album that I had made and then I would continue to conduct it so that kind of worked out great when when, when you were doing demos um, who what kind of person were you hoping would record your song like who who were you looking at um, who were the singers? Andy Williams. Um, who who were who were the singers that needed uh, Nancy Wilson? Uh, um, you know Shirley Bassey, uh, Tom Jones. Uh, these, this was the end of the '60s, and those were the kinds of singers that were recording other people's material. But at the same time, there was the new crop of young singer songwriters, which little did I know I was one of. Right. But I I didn't know that. I was still trying to come from that old Tin Pan Alley school where you wrote songs for other people to record. Um, so, I, you know, I was just writing songs that seemed like they could be recorded by other people. And little did I know that I was going to be the one that did it. Were you the first person to record one of your own songs? Yeah, I was. Yes, I was. I was the first person to record one of my own songs. If you, uh, if you don't want to count, State Farm is there. <laughs> <laughs> Is that one of your commercials? Yeah, yeah, because you wrote a, you wrote a lot of jingles before you made it as yeah, a did. as a performer. Yeah, I did. Oh, so how does the whole thing go? Um, what's the first line in that? In the State Farm but is like there. a good neighbor. Yeah. State Farm is there. Yeah. Oh but, wow! You know, a very <laughs> talented girl named uh, Leslie Miller recorded that one um, after I wrote it, and then there was another one called I Am Stuck on Band-Aids and a Band-Aid Stuck on Me, and it was a whole batch of little kids that recorded that. But, I mean, you know, I wouldn't consider that that was, you know, my first hit, you know. <laughs> well, well, let me back up to that. How did you start writing commercials? You know, we've got you going from Bette Midler's music director to, to recording demos and recording yourself. Where do the commercials fit in? Well, when I was sending my demos out, uh, a commercial agent heard some of these demos, and they thought that I was writing um, commercially. And... Um, they um, they called me and said, do you want to go up for a Dodge commercial? And I said, sure. So I wrote a, uh, a, a Dodge uh, a commercial, the melody to it, to the lyric that they gave me. And because my commercial, not knowing anything, came in like, you know, at four minutes or something. You're supposed to write it for 30 <laughs> seconds, you know. And But but they liked the melody. And um, ultimately, as we pared the whole thing down to 30 seconds, I got it. I got the first one I went up for. And then they kept calling me to, uh, to write various uh, jingles and uh, State Farm and Band-Aids are the, are the ones that uh, people still remember. Ooh, what about, I think they're still playing them. What about the McDonald's Have It Your Way? Isn't that one yours? 
No, that uh, it was. Uh, you deserve a break today. Oh, yeah, um, you deserve a break today. Right, that was right. yours. I only, wasn't it? I only sang on that one. I was, uh, I was part of the the, the vocal group. I got into the commercial world um, while I was conducting for Bet. You see, when I started, I stopped uh, accompanying everybody except Bet. But like I said, she couldn't afford to keep me on salary, so I, I, I was really making a handsome living uh, doing these commercials. And so uh, between the two of them, uh, I was able to, to support myself. Now, what did you learn about the craft of songwriting from writing commercial jingles? Well, I, you know, I, I attended the New York College of Music, and a little while I went to Juilliard, and even though that was a pretty good training for, um, uh, for my brains, um, the, the commercial world, my three years in the commercial world was really co- the college that I that I went to, uh, because I got to work with the top musicians. You know, they pay so well. You work with the top studio musicians who taught me really how to arrange music. You know, the oboe player would say, Psst, "Come on over here. You see this uh, thing? It's you're writing it too high." I'd say, "Really? I'm writing it too high? Yeah. The oboe can't go up that high. So take it down an octave." This would go on and on. I worked with the great great studio singers who taught me how to harmonize and how to change the timbre of my voice. I worked with these great engineers who, um, who uh, you know, I would stand behind and I would see how they, how they made it, how they made these uh, jingles sound so hot that they would jump out of the radio. And as far as the songwriting goes, well, you're up against so many fantastic songwriters that you've got to write the catchiest melody in 30 seconds. If you don't write it, if you don't write the best one, then the other guys get it. And so for three years, I was, uh, I was in school, and I'll never, never forget that. Now, did you ever come up with a hook for a jingle and think, wait a minute, that's really a song, it's not a jingle, I'm keeping that one for myself? I, a lot of them, but you know, once you, once you start to write 30-second jingles, they really don't want to be much more than 30-second jingles. Uh-huh. So like there were di- ideas coming to you that you knew were just like 30-second ideas? Yeah, they're great hooks, but every time I tried to expand them, they didn't work. Right, so so there's no there's no bridge to you deserve a break today. <laughs> no, there's no bridge to you deserve, and there's no bridge to State Farm is there. You know, I mean, State Farm is there is such a pretty little melody, you know, that it could be a melody, but frankly, it's probably better as a commercial. Barry Manilow speaking with Terry Gross in 2002. We'll hear more after a break. This is Fresh Air. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch, and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Osea. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. They both come in giftable boxes with savings up to $46 and free shipping for a limited time. Go to OSEAMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Let's get back to when you started performing after being more behind the scenes as, as a music director and writing commercial jingles. 
Were you self-conscious those first few times when you got up on stage and you were at the front of the stage? Um, I would say um, I was the I was the geek. <laughs> I, I was the geek of all time on the stage. Um, I really didn't know what I was doing up there. Um, uh, I, I can't I, I can't express how uncomfortable I was uh, walking out on a stage, having the spotlight hit me, and me having to lead um, the uh, evening. And w- uh, w- I, it, what about that experience made you so uncomfortable? Well, I, like I say, I, I had never practiced for it. I had never uh, imagined it. I had never um, uh, thought about it. All I really ever thought about was making music, not performing music. And so it was a very um, um, uncomfortable, uh, scary um, experience for me. But the amazing part about that was that the audience never had trouble with it, ever. From the very first moment I hit the stage and sang my own songs, the audiences never had the kind of trouble that I was having uh, accepting this new role. What did you think it took to be a good performer or entertainer that you were afraid you might not have? Um, Style, um, uh, confidence, um, experience, not being self-conscious um, those were all the things that I you know that that I I didn't have I was very self-conscious I I didn't know my way around a stage I didn't know the rules of performing you know I didn't know what to do with my legs I was just, what about your arms or uh, my arms forget about my legs what am I gonna I, I mean I would stand there you know and I know that I would feel like uh, you know uh, uh, naked and uh, vulnerable and um the audiences loved that. Maybe they, they identified with, with your self-consciousness. Maybe they did. But whatever it was, I was very comfortable sitting at the piano singing Could Have Been Magic, but then, you know, having to talk with them and um, stand up and, and, you know, lead a whole hour-long set, that was, it was torture. It was just torture for me. I, just, I was just very uncomfortable for many, many years. When you were having all those top ten hits, this was the seventies and the eighties. Now, all of us who were who who, who remember then <laughs> know that well, most of us were fashion victims of one sort or another during that era. Particularly in the seventies, there we? were some 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 pretty frightening things that mm. we, we we all wore that we all participated mm. in. Uh, as a performer, I, I think per- it's even worse for performers because performers have to wear more extreme versions of whatever. And pe- and, and, <laughs> and you're and you're tortured with them for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, like, here I am bringing it up again for you. So, what 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 are some of your worst fashion memories? Well, you know, I, I was I, you know I looked just like Rod Stewart and Elton John did. <laughs> you know, we all wearing we all looked like well, idiots back then. You know, I got suits. the you know, I, yeah. you know the, the, the glitter and the you know bell bottoms and the platform shoes and uh, the puka bees and I, I frankly I looked like Britney Spears back then <laughs> with my long blonde hair really but before the boob job oh, exactly was I was gonna right. I was gonna mention that's, that that was me uh, David Rakoff did an interview with you in the Sunday New York Times magazine 
Yeah. And uh, you, you had mentioned that the Smithsonian had asked for your, <laughs> your Copacabana jacket, which, which you really? described. Really? Isn't that funny? Yeah, you described it as being a huge, huge ruffled Desi Arnaz Babalu kind of thing. And it is. It's, I did it as a joke in 1978. And, you know, I, 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 they, they, and somebody took a photo of me. And, you know, uh, from that moment on, I was sunk. I was just sunk. <laughs> you know, I did it as a joke, but I think people, you know, thought that I was serious. We, we said that the Smithsonian asked you for the jacket. You sent it to them, and then they sent it back to you. Well, here's the re- the real story is this. I re- I just put my foot in my mouth. They, they, they asked me for the jacket, and, you know, it's such a funny jacket. It's a joke. And so when I got it, I was interviewed, and the interviewer said, it's going to the Smithsonian. I said, yeah, I always knew it was going to wind up in an institution. And the Smithsonian got so insulted, they sent it back. Oh, oh. <laughs> So, so where is the jacket now? Oh, it it lives in uh, my offices in uh, in Los Angeles, and um, um, it's still as silly as it ever was. But now, it, now it has a little bit more meaning to, for me. Um, no, I I have a question for you, and I know you're asked this a lot, but um, has it bothered you that um, although you've had this huge success over the years, there's also been uh, people people you know listeners and and some critics who who like use the word syrupy to describe your music and you know you've been the butt of jokes and in some articles and other places is is that difficult to handle does it bug you uh now and again it does i'm you know human so yeah it does i you know i i uh, I go into self-pity for a while and i pull the covers over my head like any human being would do but it doesn't it never really stopped me um mostly because i believe in what i do I listen to these songs, you know, trying to get the feeling and this one's for you and when October goes and I say, well, I like them. <laughs> I think they sound great. And, you know, my band likes them and my, the audiences like them. And, and so I just keep going. I just keep doing what I love doing and um, hope that there's an audience out there for it. And I, I was always surprised at uh, the critics uh, when they felt they needed to be so mean-spirited um, in their opinions uh, to somebody that they never even met. Um, so, but I forgave them, um, <laughs> uh, the, the little creeps, uh, for, for making my life miserable all those years. <laughs> but, you know, the best revenge is like I say before, like I said before, you know, I continue to get the opportunity to, to make music, to make the music that I love to make. And so that's really the best revenge. You're, you're on a, a long performance tour now. Are you still self-conscious when you're performing? No, not anymore. Not anymore. I am a sex god now. And I, <laughs> I accept it. I have accepted the fact that I am a sex god. And have, have women ever thrown panties <laughs> at you and done that whole bit? Only once. Only once. And I thought maybe she was asking me to take it out to the laundry. You know? <laughs> <laughs> where, where was this? Uh, uh, it was in Vegas. Where else would they do that? Exactly, and right. So, um, But no, they, they, um, they usually throw... Uh, they don't throw very much things at me. They, you know, little soft teddy bears and roses and stuff. It's it's always, it's always very nice. Um, no, I'm I'm very comfortable on the stage these days. Much more comfortable than I ever thought I would ever be. And it, it hit around I would say ten, eleven, twelve years ago uh, when I finally accepted that this was not going to stop. This was not going to go away. It seemed to be getting bigger, and I had better learn how to make myself comfortable on that stage, or else I was going to be a very miserable old man. Right. <laughs> And uh, I, I took acting classes. Oh. Took acting classes from uh, a brilliant uh, acting teacher and actress named Nina Fosh. And um, 
when I started taking acting lessons, it was the first time I realized that what I was doing, there, there were rules for what I was doing. I, for, for those first, I'd say, 10 years, I was meandering around the stage um, trying to crawl into a lyric as, as honestly as I could, but because I'd never thought about actions and motivations um, and uh, reasons for singing or reasons for moving on a stage, it always felt so unsafe to me because I didn't know where I was. I didn't know why I was doing it. As soon as I began to take acting lessons, I'm not, not that I'm a great actor, but I was able to learn the rules of acting. You break down a script. Um, you don't walk in, unless you have a reason to walk. You don't speak unless you know who you're speaking to. These were the rules that I, I mean, I guess other performers know how to do that. I, I didn't. I was just going by the, flying by the seat of my pants, and luckily the audiences liked it. And again, because I had the music to rely on, and I was pretty good at that. Uh, I was able to get through it. But emotionally, I was a wreck every night because I had no rules. I was out of control. As soon as I finished taking acting classes or in the middle of it, I began to learn the rules of what you do when you're on a stage. And it was the thing that saved my life as a, as a performer. Barry Manilow recorded in 2002. His new Broadway musical Harmony is based on the true story of the Comedian Harmonists, an internationally famous male singing group in Germany who were banned by the Nazis. Coming up, Justin Chang reviews the new film Poor Things, starring Emma Stone and Mark Ruffalo. This is Fresh Air. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. The top prize winner at this year's Venice International Film Festival was the dark comedy Poor Things, starring Emma Stone as a Victorian woman who embarks on a strange personal journey. It's Stone's latest collaboration with the director Yorgos Lanthimos after their Oscar-winning period drama The Favorite. Poor Things also stars Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe. The movie's now in theaters, and our film critic Justin Chang has this review. Poor Things is a little Alice in Wonderland, a little Wizard of Oz, a little Marquis de Sade, and a whole lot of Frankenstein. It also has a lot in common with some of Yorgos Lanthimos's earlier films, like The Favorite and Dogtooth, transgressive sex, sadistic power games, and grisly violence. But if the movie is brutal, it's also extravagantly beautiful, extremely funny, and by the end, strangely touching, even uplifting. 
This may be Lanthimos's most unhinged movie, but it also has a joyous exuberance that I haven't felt in much of his earlier work. The story, loosely adapted from a 1992 novel by the Scottish writer Alastair Gray, follows a most unusual character named Bella Baxter, played by a mesmerizing Emma Stone. When we first meet Bella in 19th century London, she looks like an adult woman, but has the awkward gait, unformed speech, and anarchic spirit of a very young child. As we learn early on, she's the product of a back-from-the-dead mad science experiment, in which she was implanted with the brain of the child she was carrying at the time of her death. Bella, in other words, is both her mother and her daughter, and, in a weird way, neither. Under the watchful eye of her creator, that's Willem Dafoe as the sweetly deranged scientist Dr. Godwin Baxter, Bella develops rapidly. Before long, she's walking and talking more or less like a grown-up, though her inventively tortured speech patterns remain one of the best-running gags in Tony McNamara's script. Inevitably, Bella discovers sex, first exploring her own adult body with childlike curiosity, and then having a passionate fling with a rogue named Duncan Wedderburn, a hilariously over-the-top Mark Ruffalo. When they have sex for the first time, the movie, which until now has mostly been filmed in black and white, explodes into wild, rapturous color. Like an especially body riff on Voltaire's Candide, Poor Things becomes the story of Bella's sexual odyssey. Ever since the movie's Venice Film Festival premiere, much of the reaction has focused on its many frenzied sex scenes, in which the bodies of Stone and Ruffalo, among others, are on abundant display. But the movie is after something more than mere titillation. Much of the time, it emphasizes the absurdity rather than the ecstasy of sex. Before long, Bella grows bored and disillusioned. She learns that men are mostly horrible and that the world is full of suffering and poverty. Soon she begins making new friends, reading Emerson and nourishing her mind. At one point, while they're on a European boat cruise, Duncan becomes jealous, accusing Bella of spending too much time with two other travelers who are having an engrossing intellectual debate. Bella responds, as she often does, by referring to herself in the third person. These two are fighting and ideas are banging around in Bella's head and heart like lights in a storm. Oh. You're always reading now, Bella. You're losing some of your adorable way of speaking. I'm a changingable feast, as are all of we. Apparently, according to Emerson, disagreed with by Harry. Come, come, just come. You were in my son. What? If Bella's Baroque dialogue makes poor things a lot of fun to listen to, it's also gorgeous to look at. Lanthimos has never been afraid of anachronism, and here he embraces it head on. His production designers, Shona Heath and James Price, have dreamed up a futuristic, candy-colored vision of the 19th century, where people movers soar over city streets and chimneys belch green smoke into a dark purple sky. This almost steampunk fantasy version of Victoriana, often shot with fisheye lenses by the gifted cinematographer Robbie Ryan, 
suggests just how radically strange the world must look to Bella's eyes. And Jerskin Fendrix's dissonant, unruly score feels like something piped in directly from Bella's subconscious. Some admirers of Poor Things have argued that it's a feminist work, in which Bella's erotic awakening becomes the key to her liberation. The movie's detractors have dismissed it as just a superficially empowering girl-boss narrative. I'm hardly the only one to have noticed that it's basically the unfamily-friendly version of Barbie, in which a woman's childlike naivete becomes a surprisingly effective weapon against the patriarchy. I guess that makes Ruffalo's greasy-haired Duncan a Ken, though you might say the same for the men played by Rami Youssef, Jared Carmichael, and Christopher Abbott, all of whom try, in their own ways, to manipulate Bella's destiny. But Bella won't be controlled, and she's much too brilliant a character to be reduced to a symbol or archetype. Stone gives a great, audacious performance. Her Bella can be ignorant, selfish, impulsive, and cruel, but also fiercely intelligent, witty, thoughtful, and kind. Lanthimos has seldom expressed much affection for his characters, but he clearly loves this one to pieces. He's made a movie that, even at its most outlandish, has its heart in the right place, even if its brains are not. Justin Chang is the film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed Poor Things, starring Emma Stone and Mark Ruffalo. On Monday's show, we speak with Coleman Domingo, a star of two of the big holiday film releases. In the biopic Rustin, he plays Bayard Rustin, the civil rights leader most responsible for organizing the 1963 March on Washington, who was forced into the background because he was gay. In The Color Purple, he plays Mr., the abusive husband. I hope you can join us. To keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shorrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support from Joyce Lieberman and Julian Hertzfeld. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, and marie Baldonado, Bea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm Dave Davies. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity tells you there is more to uncover. How how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism. Immersive and intimate stories. I was stone cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. 
Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.